Hello, and welcome to the session on Industrial Alternative Foods for Global Catastrophic Risk with Juan Garcia Martinez. I'm Sienna, and I'll be the MC for the session. We'll be starting with a 15-minute talk by Juan, followed by a live Q&A session where Juan will respond to some of your questions. You can submit questions using the box to the right-hand side of this video. You can also vote for your favourite questions to push them up higher on the list. Now I would like to introduce our speaker for the session. Juan Garcia Martinez has a background in chemical and process engineering and works as a research associate at the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, also known as ORFED. He studies single cell proteins as an alternative food source in the event of a sun-blocking global food catastrophe, such as a large asteroid, supervolcano, or nuclear winter. Here's Juan. Hello and welcome to this presentation on industrial solutions to mass starvation for global catastrophic risks. At Olfeld, our mission is to enable humanity to recover from abrupt food production shocks, thus reducing the severity of global catastrophic risk and the probability of existential risk. Some members of our board of advisors include Anders Sandberg and Robin Hanson from the Future of Humanity Institute, Martin Hellman from Stanford University, who is the recipient of a Turing Award, and Jan Talling, known for having founded Skype. Two key members of our team are David Denkenberger, our director and co-founder, and Joshua Pierce. Together, the two of them started the Alternative Foods Research Line in 2014. In this diagram, I'm showing uh, most of the global catastrophes that we deal with at Alfred, with increasing gravity in the x-axis from left to right. First, we look at uh, events classified as global disasters that could produce uh, food production loss on the order of around 10%, so losing around 10% of the cap calorie production capacity of humanity. This could be produced by any of the events on this list, and the expected probability of this happening uh, or, or a combination of this happening in the next 100 years is over 80%. We also study scenarios that include loss of industrial civilization, in which we lose uh, all of the industry or power production facilities. But the most important ones, or the ones we focus on the most, are global catastrophes that include total food or near total food production loss on the order around 100%. Uh, we expect the probability of one of this scenario occurring during the next 100 years is on the order of magnitude of 10% chance. Uh, these global catastrophes are mostly uh, described by the, uh, by the um, uh, subset of sun-blocking global catastrophes. This could be produced by an event such as the impact of a large asteroid or comet, a supervolcanic eruption, or a global nuclear war causing nuclear winter. In these sun-blocking catastrophes, a great amount of smoke will be produced and lodged into the atmosphere, preventing most of the solar radiation from entering Earth, thus making global agriculture infeasible in most of uh, the planet. So we're going to be discussing this type of events in the, and solutions to them in depth in the rest of the presentation. Let's characterize our proposed sunblocking in global catastrophic risk scenario. The change will be abrupt. Abruptness is a key property of these scenarios, which makes uh, adaptation to them very difficult, to call the contrary of scenarios such as climate change. Uh, global food storage would last three to six months expected, and the, but increasing the reserves of this uh, food storage will be expensive, slow, and cause scarcity, which could harm poor countries now. So instead of this, we're proposing the production of alternative foods that could be produced even during the sun-blocking catastrophe, which we think could, be, could save lives much more cost-effectively than increasing food reserves. 
In our proposed unblocking scenario, we would have critically reduced solar radiation. And we are assuming that the global population, biomass and infrastructure are not irreparably affected. We will have a temperature drop on average of uh, eight degrees Celsius in one year, which could mean uh, a drop of up to 40 degrees in some regions on Earth. In fact, we expect from models that most of the more northern hemisphere will have below freezing temperatures even in summer. And the energy, water and dwelling needs of the population are assumed to be covered in this scenario. So we expect that if we were to rely on, stored, on food storage only, we would, uh, the price of food would rise up to $100 per dry kilogram, and we could save at most 10% of the global population. However, if we were able to produce uh, in mass uh, alternative foods that were cheap, we, should think, we think we would be able to push survivability of the population over 90%. In fact, uh, if we were able to produce, for example, seaweed at a price of $2.5 per dry kilogram, we expect to, that around 97% of the global population will be able to afford it and thus avoid starvation. In this table, I'm showing the current prices of some of the emergency foods we are proposing. Uh, in bold, we can see the key, some of the key low-tech solutions we are looking at. For example, sugar beets and potatoes cultivated outside, outdoors, if that were feasible, depending on the severity of the catastrophe, uh, or cultivating grains in greenhouses in the tropics, low-tech greenhouses in the tropics. We also could produce uh, possibly seaweed in the ocean in great amounts and cheap, uh, in, and it will be a cheap solution. Or we could extract protein concentrate from leaves or obtain uh, milk from the remaining ruminant population. These low-tech solutions are key for fulfilling the caloric requirements of humanity after the catastrophe. But we would be probably missing in some key macronutrients, such as proteins and fats, if we were to rely only on them. So for that, we have industrial solutions, even though they scale slower than these low-tech solutions. For these industrial solutions, we will be able to leverage some existing resources to produce food even without the sun. For example, we could use the lignocellulosic biomass, such as leaves, trees, or agricultural residues that will be lying around, or we could use fossil fuels such as coal, gas, and oil, or even CO2, whether from industrial sources or extracted directly from the atmosphere. We could use this as a chemical construction block for food production. The first industrial solution I'll be presenting is single-cell protein, or SCP, which are these uh, protein-rich granules that I'm showing here with a high quality of protein that are obtained by a special fermentation process by feeding special gases to, to particular microbes. This require, uh, these microbes require an energy source, a carbon source, a nitrogen source, and an oxygen source. If we feed these four things to them, they will grow and we will be able to separate them from the mixture, dry them, and use them to feed them to humans or to animals that could be fed to humans. But we, was, uh, we propose to feed them to humans for efficiency, of course. Um, this product could be obtained uh, from different sources. We we're going to be looking specifically at two. First, we're going to be looking at single-cell protein from natural gas or from methane. Specific microbes can digest methane as an energy and carbon source. And if we were to feed them also oxygen, um, an isolating source, for example, in the source of ammonia, they would grow and we would 
be able to separate them from the reactor mixture, from the fermenter, through several dewatering steps, and then disrupt and break the cells down and dry the resulting product into these granules, which can be post-processed into a more palatable product. We expect the cost of this would be uh, around $1.2 to $1.9 trillion in terms of capital cost to cover the global protein requirements of the entire population. This is still less money than has been spent by world governments into the governments around the world into stimulus checks for the global pandemic. So this speaks to the feasibility of the solution. So how fast could we produce this alternative food? This is characterized by the magnitude of ramp up speed, which reflects the speed at which we can uh, ramp up the capacity of production capacity of the food in over time after the catastrophe. Here I'm showing the graph of the ramp up speed in terms of the caloric requirements uh, fulfilled of the population. And we've estimated that it would take nearly two years to start producing, uh, to finish building the first construction plant. So since this is too slow, we looked at what would happen if we were to instead use fast construction methods, of which we've identified 24 seven construction as the most efficient ones. This means construction constructing around the clock, 24 hours, seven days a week. And this will reduce original construction time to around one third of the original value. So we will be able to start producing food not shortly after one half year after the catastrophe event. Here I'm showing the same graph, but this time in terms of the protein requirements being fulfilled over time. And we can observe that using methane or natural gas seals or protein, we will be able to fulfill global protein requirements in two to four years. So even within the duration of the catastrophe, which is key. That's avoiding protein deficiency for most of the global population, if we could do it. So at what cost would this come? We've performed a net present value analysis, as we do for all the industrial alternative food solutions, which has yielded a result of a retail cost of the protein from $4 to $6 per kilogram dye, dry. Uh, this will mean that that's the cost that people would buy it at retail stores. So that should be available or affordable for most of the global population. The other type of single-cell protein we studied is single-cell protein from hydrogen and CO2. So these special microbes would use hydrogen as an energy source and CO2 as a carbon source. It doesn't matter where the hydrogen comes from, So, we've, but we've looked at two representative processes, water electrolysis and coal gasification. In any case, we've estimated that the cost of the single-cell protein from hydrogen would be higher than that of methane at six to $16 per kilogram dry. But it could be lower depending on the situation. And it will also ramp up slower due to higher capital cost. It would take about six years to fulfill protein requirements on average using this technology. So even though it's uh, overall uh, worse than the methane single-cell protein, it could be better depending on the industrial situation or in different regions. The next solution is synthetic fat from petroleum. And this is based on taking a specific fraction of crude oil, known as petroleum wax, and subjecting it to oxidation and to several petrochemistry process steps in order to obtain synthetic fatty acids from the wax. Then we would take these fatty acids and react them to with glycerol in order to obtain, uh, through esterification, to obtain uh, triglycerides that could be converted into a margarine-like product, allowing us to obtain the macronutrient of fat. 
this is a relatively fast scaling uh, technology, and we expect that we will be able to, with it, to fulfill the global requirements uh, of the population of fat in between around one to three years time. However, we've uh, identified the potential key resource bottleneck, which is the amount of actual petroleum wax available in the world. So we, depending on process efficiency, we expect to have a limitation uh, between 50 to 100% of the fund requirements. So it's possible that we could only fulfill 50% of the requirements if there wasn't enough uh, wax to go. And the last industrial food solution I'm showing here is lignocellulosic sugar. Here, the, uh, we would be taking lignocellulosic biomass, such as, for example, tree leaves, and subjecting it to a um, biological and enzymatic treatment and chemical treatment in order to break down the cellulose contained in the biomass into simple sugars that can be digested by humans. The ramp-up speed of this technology is relatively slower compared to the other ones we've seen so far, but here we've looked at repurposing. Repurposing existing facilities for changing them to produce whatever they're producing right now to producing cellulosic sugar is particularly promising. For example, we've estimated that if we were to repurpose uh, pulp and paper production facilities, we, which would be relatively low cost repurposing, we would be able to produce up to 10% of the global caloric requirements even within the first year, which is a lot. And also the cost of the sugar would be reduced from $4 per kilogram dye uh, using uh, construction of new facility to uh, $2.4 per kilogram dry with the repurposing. Finally, I'm showing in this graph the price to feed a person in dollars per person per day for all the industrial food solutions we've presented so far. And we've seen and we see here that the price of, to feed a person goes from $1 to $6 on average for them, which should be affordable for most of the global population. Uh, this is for prices during the catastrophe. They will be cheaper outside of a catastrophe to produce. Uh, in the future, we'll be, losing, uh, uh, we'll be looking at other foods uh, produced from CO2 and water under a grant from NASA, such as from electroactive bacteria or by non-biological conversion of CO2 into sugars or glycerol. We see that using these industrial solutions, we are able to obtain all three main macronutrients, which are carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So we can cover all of the main nutritional needs of the population. And we will look uh, in future research at prioritization of the different foods and how to combine them for a feasible solution to, to a sunblocking catastrophe. Some conclusions I'd like you to take away are that industrial solutions are useful for low probability, large impact scenarios such as sunblocking catastrophes, of which we can expect a one in 10 chance in the next 100 years. And there are two key specifications for alternative foods, the speed at which it can ramp up and the price of the food. If they underperform in either of the two uh, metrics, we wouldn't be able to use them effectively. And finally, industrial solutions produce all three macronutrients by leveraging waste products and, fuel and fossil fuels. Finally, I'd like to make a call to action. If you're interested to learn more, please go to our website, alfa.info and raise awareness about this issue. 
which is quite um, neglected in public discourse. If you're interested, you can also donate to global catastrophic risk organizations such as the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute or to Alfred directly. And if you are very interested, you're welcome to join us by sending an email to info at alfred.info or to look at our projects at effectivethesis.com. We're always looking for people from diverse backgrounds and with different sets of skills. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for that talk, Juan. I see we've got a number of questions submitted, so let's go with the first one. Are there any promising research being done on industrial solutions for ramping up micronutrient production? Micronutrient production, yes. Well, although we're not looking specifically at um, assessing how we could take, um, so how we could produce, for example, imagine those vitamin D uh, pills that some of you may be taking. Um, we're not looking specifically at how to ramping up the production of those, but we're looking at, uh, we're doing research on how to combine the different alternative foods uh, in our portfolio that we have so far in such a way that there wouldn't be any uh, nutritional deficiencies there. So in a way, we're looking at how to scale up micronutrient production within the framework of scaling up calories in general. So in a way, we are, but not specifically on, on let's say, producing the compounds separately, but within the, the parts of uh, that are contained in the foods that we're trying to produce already. And we think we can cover uh, all of the nutritional needs of the population with the foods we have so far. For example, seaweed is very rich in iodine and uh, other nutrients will be a bit more difficult like essential fatty acids. Uh, would require maybe specific production processes for them, but we're, we're looking into it in future research. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's super interest, interesting. And I think that kind of follows into this next question. Um, is protein deficiency that bad? Couldn't we just get enough uh, calories in macronutrient supplements? I suppose the focus isn't on um, just protein. It's also on those macronutrients um, such as iodine as in the seaweed. Right, so protein deficiency is quite bad, I'm hearing. Uh, as far as I know, uh, it is a real issue in some parts of uh, Africa that see famines periodically. Um, you may have seen those uh, pictures of uh, people, uh, usually children with bloated stomachs. Uh, those kind of uh, sicknesses usually stem from a diet very poor in protein uh, and mostly based on carbohydrates. So usually if you have a protein deficiency, especially for children, it's a huge problem, but it can have devastating consequences in the metabolism for, for people of any age. That's why we're looking into um, single cell proteins, so from fermentation processes, uh, as a very promising alternative food. Thank you for that. I'm gonna head off into the next question because we're running a bit out of time. Um, has Alford identified any effective policy paths to reduce risk, um, for example, influencing government or multi multilateral organizations? Oh, good question. I'm on the research side, specifically the technical research side. So it's not my expertise, but and I'm, I cannot name any specific examples, but I'm aware that some of our members uh, during the COVID-19 crisis were advising some African governments regarding how to respond. So we are um, in talks with some governments, also uh, in more uh, in countries, in developed countries, 
And we're looking into, I know there are people on the team looking into this. Sahil Shah is looking into this. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. I'm actually going to ask one of my own questions, if that's okay. Um, sure. So I'm super interested um, in, so in the past, uh, edible jelly has been made out of leather belts in past famines. Do you think Wolfed is hanging on to a similar hope that people will eat whatever, um, strange things, in the case of a catastrophic event? Yeah, we usually get uh, questions about the way that our solutions are strange, like eating bacteria and eating fats from petroleum and mm -hmm. protein from leaves. They are yeah. weird, yeah, but uh, of course, it also it all depends on the gravity of the catastrophe. When you have a sunblocking catastrophe like the, like the ones we've discussed, it is uh, presumable that most of the people in the... Uh, in the world, specifically poor people, aren't going to be able to afford any of the stored food. So they're going to depend on whatever they're going to be able to to get that is produced without relying on, on agriculture. So they're going to have to, if the catastrophe is very severe, they're going to be, they're going to have to eat whatever's available. So, you know, even during famines, even if they weren't as severe as a sunblocking scenario, we've seen people eat some really, um, we would consider unreasonable stuff. So I think the answer to that is yes, especially for very severe catastrophes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think when it's super severe, people will eat anything um, in survival mode. Awesome, thank you for that. Um, and then uh, last question. Um, so someone's trying to imagine what a dollar means in a world that has been abrupt, has had its sun loss. Um, could you say a bit more about how you estimate the costs of each solution? Are those costs of preparation or the cost of implementation after the event? Right. So the cost of producing food after the event is going to, we, we estimate it based on current costs. So uh, as you would do with uh, when you're um, looking at the feasibility of any chemical or, or food, uh, we're looking at labor costs, uh, production costs, such as uh, any of the resources that are put in. There's also the capital cost. So when we look at it in a catastrophe, some of those costs would change quite a lot. Uh, the capital costs would be increased. For example, we usually uh, increase them to account for producing the factories faster than normal. And then the prices of the different commodities required could fluctuate quite a lot. They could change significantly compared to the current values. Maybe electricity, uh, the price could drop or the price could rise uh, incredibly. So there's quite a bit of uncertainty there. And we're looking at, we're collaborating, for example, with um, uh, researchers funded by Open Philanthropy to, to look at uh, equilibrium model and uh, market equilibrium models to try to estimate what, how the economic system would look after a catastrophe. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that is really important to consider. Uh, thank you so much. That is all the time we have. Uh, as Juan mentioned in the talk, if you're interested in getting in touch with Orfed, um, you can email them and um, see how that goes. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for watching.